Welcome to Crossroads, a podcast by Christ Presbyterian Church, where we talk about the intersection between Christ Church and the contemporary culture around us. Today I have with me William Skinner, who has been our uh, legendary church intern here for the last two years and is about to take off to uh, go to seminary at RTS Jackson. So, William, welcome. And if you've uh, been listening to our other um, our other conversations, episodes, you've, you've heard his voice before, but William, how you doing? I'm doing well, Josh. Glad to be with you. And legendary is, is uh, rather gracious for me, but I've, I've been blessed to be the intern here. Yeah, man. So what are your plans moving, moving forward here in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, so I'm uh, going to keep, keep working at Christ Pres through the 31st of May, and then I'm going to go spend a week with my grandmother, um, spend time with her. Amazing. Yeah, then uh, I'm going to go on a quick trip with my family, and then I'm going to move into uh, to Jackson and start uh, studying Hebrew in Jackson for the beginning of my MDiv program. Wow. Well, you'll be coming back here in a couple of years preaching and te- teaching us all Hebrew, maybe getting a PhD, who knows, but we're looking forward and um, we'll certainly miss you when we've been blessed by you. And uh, old Will Leitner will have a, a big shoes to uh, to step into here in a couple no, of weeks. He's, but. he's a much more worthy man than I. <laughs> well, um, if you joined us last week uh, for... Episode one of our uh, postmodernism series, um, which of course will be a two-part series and we'll finish up today, then you are a little more educated on the Enlightenment and Romanticism and um, some scientific modernism. So to just to quickly recap what we talked about last week, uh, to start getting the, the, the ball rolling on this discussion, we introduced postmodernism and what it is and basically the system of, of relativist or subjective thought that has so infiltrated our culture and unfortunately the church today. Um, and so obviously during the Crossroads podcast, we will be talking about the intersections between culture and the church, and this is one of the most pressing issues today. So postmodernism as a whole was influenced by really three large mainstreams of thought. Uh, the first being the Enlightenment, where reason is king, where much of Scripture was um, pushed aside, much of any religious or super superstitious or supernatural thought was was pushed aside in favor of philosophical reasoning. Uh, there are many people who would still agree with that today, uh, but they are born the minority, and that has given way to people who are, are more. I guess we could say philosophical romantics in terms of postmodernist uh, romanticism, which came after the Enlightenment, basically put the emphasis in terms of feelings and truth um, on the individual. It said that the the person's truth, uh, how they felt individually, was really what mattered most. So if one thing was true for one person, it may not be true for another, but at the end of the day, as long as you were happy, who cared? Who cares? And then we had uh, really German liberalism and scientific modernism after that, which said that there is nothing supernatural that could possibly happen. And so we had a group called the Fundamentalists that were fighting the the moderates in the early 1900s, disagreeing on things such as the virgin birth and Jesus's supernatural miracles and even the resurrection, all things that, of of course, the Christian faith hinges on. Um, And postmodernism takes some elements of all of this. And at at the core, postmodernism does a couple things. It, it denies truth, um, objective truth outside of us. It, it, it says that truth is in the individual. It, it takes the emphasis in terms of a hermeneutic, in terms of an interpretive mindset, and, and places that emphasis on the reader instead of the author. So when I come to scripture or I come to maybe a science textbook or really any book, 
what matters is my interpretation of it, not the author's intent, which, as we know, just kind of, which logically just puts us in circles, um, interpretive circles, and truth can't be found at that point. We're just interpreting it as, as, as we see. So, Skinner, why don't you give us a couple more thoughts on, on how, you, how you see postmodernism today? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, like, even in our, even how, in the way that we think about this, right? And you saying, give me my thoughts on postmodernism. Right. We're so inundated with postmodern thought that we have to be careful to um, step back and, um, and, and really evaluate ourselves. So, for me, um, you know, I've, I've heard an analogy one time that was talking about how we teach people to identify counterfeit bills, and I don't know if, if you've heard this one before, but basically, you know, one school of thought would be you, you study the counterfeit bill and a, a bunch of different counterfeit bills to, to realize how do I pick up the counterfeit bill. And then the other thought would be study a real dollar bill, and then you'll know how to tell which one's not real. Um, I, I think the way that I see this issue is, um, you know, God is not up for debate. God's truth is not up for debate. God exists, and we don't get to determine his existence. We don't get to determine his existence. Um, God exists, and his word is authoritative, and, and that speaks into us, that, that we, it is authoritative over us. Our culture more so, and I, I like your history that you just gave, our culture wants to tell us, um, you know, we're the judges, we're the evaluators, uh, well, well, Romans 1 actually says, you know, man um, doesn't want to hear that. Man does not want to be judged by God. Man does, you know, Romans 1 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, because what can be known about God is manifest to them, is plain to them, for God has shown it to them in the things that have been made since the creation of the world. These things have been clearly seen and understood um, and men are without excuse. But men uh, are sinful. Man in our fallen state, we don't want to acknowledge God's existence. We don't want to acknowledge his deity. So we suppress the truth about God. And men claiming to be wise have become fools. And now we are essentially evaluating everything uh, through what man perceives to be true. And so uh, postmodernism can be slippery and it can be hard to to get our, our minds around. But I think ultimately the best way that I, I see fit to address this issue is by looking at what is true. What do I know to be true? And I don't get really – I don't get to be we, – we you and I don't get to be the judge of what's, what, what is true. Thank goodness. We just – yeah, absolutely. You know, what Jeremiah 17, um, chapter 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Yeah. Who can trust it? Um, so we have to come to the word of God and submit ourselves to it. And, and this is God's word over us. And we have to basically interpret everything through the word of God um, is the way that I see that. Would you have any problems with that? No, I think we're, we're in complete agreement there. And we'll talk a little bit about worldview tonight. And uh, there is this great quote that, that, that I want to just kind of start our discussion off with in terms of what we'll be talking about today. Um, and, and it says orthodoxy being Christian orthodoxy, often requires us to be hard precisely where the world is soft and soft where the world is hard. In every way that matters, Christianity is an affront to the world. It is countercultural. 
So I think that'll really start us off well because what we're going to say tonight are things that people would hate, people will hate. Of course, the truth of God is always hated by the world, uh, but praise God that he softens the hearts of many to love his truth. And so we hope that you know our discussion here, um, even though it may inevitably upset somebody, uh, will of course equip his church to go out into the world and face these things um, head on. So just just very quickly, um, again, kind of setting the stage for our discussion, we're talking about postmodernism, which manifests itself in multiple different ways. It manifests itself, as we talked a little bit about last week, in critical race theory and gender studies, um, sexuality studies. And basically what we're talking about here is kind of a Marxist social science that at its core is what post- postmodernism is built around, uh, the oppressor versus the oppressed in all aspects of life. Um, and I, I read something interestingly, and in, 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 in a side note here, aside from scripture, the best uh, resource on postmodernism is probably Jordan Peterson. Uh, the guy is brilliant, and he really gets after it in terms of discussing these things and, and the harm that they bring. Uh, and, and Jordan Peterson, at least not yet, uh, has, he hasn't yet come to Christ, and we hope and pray that he will. And he's, you know, showing signs of considering biblical truth, and and, and even to the point of, of crying on a recent podcast, uh, just overwhelmed by the thought of God and and the truth of Scripture. So we pray and, and hope that the Lord will continue uh, working on his heart. So, with that being said, this this stat that I found really interesting. Um, so when anyone reads, you know, maybe an academic journal or an academic book, you'll see lots of footnotes or subnotes at the bottom of, of the book. This is true not only in theology or in philosophy, but in science and any type of study. And postmodernists, at least self-proclaimed postmodernists, have an 80% non-citation rate in their works, which basically means 80% of all postmodern journals, books, speeches, lectures, have a non-citation rate of 80% basically saying that they didn't cite any source, that they didn't do any previous study, that what they're saying in classic postmodern fashion is just their own thoughts. And that's really the only way that we can know what truth is, is from an individual person or what truth is, you know, subjectively to that person. So postmodernists at their core really don't read, it seems. Um, they, they don't seem to um, take history seriously. Of course, many postmodernists argue that history actually is a social construct and we can't trust any history unless it's founded on this oppressor, oppressive, oppressive, uh, you know, mindset or, or history. So, you know, what do you, what do you think about that, William? I mean, do you think our, you know, are you okay with kind of framing our discussion based on this or how do you kind of see this taking place within the church or within culture today? Yeah. I, I see one of the, the main flaws of postmodernism is that it looks at the way that things are and and says, you know, the way things are is inherently wrong. Um, and and that, that could be for one or more problems. You know, I, I, I wonder if we've ever stopped to question that, <laughs> why they say that things are always wrong. I guess it's the oppressor, the oppressed um, mentality. But the current human, you know, system uh, is wrong. The assertions about human nature that, that are made from, from any, you know, the Bible or Christianity or, or, you know, those are wrong assertions. And so it has to be torn down and recreated. But what happens when you recreate it is you're eventually establishing another system. Mm-hmm. You're establishing another kind of, you know, and, and, and historically um, these have been more disastrous than the, the 
the systems that preceded them. Um, so it, it does seem to be very bad for human flourishing as far as a societal system, postmodernism and these, these thoughts. Um, I think the danger of what we have to talk about more so for us and, and for this conversation would be, you know, the church really should not be that affected by these thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. We do have, we have an authoritative word (laughs) and we don't really have to question um, these kinds of things. Uh, So I think it's negative politically, economically, in in a lot of different ways. But I think it's a different conversation when we come to the church. Yeah, we'll leave that to Jordan Peterson, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jordan Peterson can take over a much, much smarter man than 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 we are. Um, take care of the political and economic. All those those, those those topics may come back into our conversation, but I guess we would be primarily concerned with, um, you know, how the church is being influenced by the culture in this regard. Yep, yep. Um so really at the core of what we're talking about, it's a worldview conversation, right? right? Uh, we're talking about how we see the world, how, how the individual sees the world, particularly how Christians should, should see the world. Um, and that's hard. That's, all, that, that, that's really the most debated thing in our world today. Even within Orthodox denominations, this is the question. How do we see the world? Do we see it through a biblical worldview where God has told us that sin has entered the hearts of man through the fall and that we are all naturally depraved and sinful by birth and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Um, you know, we're toast, right? right? We have no ability to come to Christ unless he comes to us. We have no ability to desire uh, really any morality outside of our own selfish gain. Um, I, I, I tell Frequently, when I when I teach any kind of Bible study or, or talk to loved ones about these types of things, that when I was in college, I woke up at 7 a.m. and went and did a little church cleanup, churchyard work, whatnot. And I sat there, you know, serving the Lord, per se. And I thought to myself, I really think the pastor should recognize me tomorrow morning. This is Saturday morning. I think, I, you know, the, the pastor should really get up there and say, hey, man, Josh got up and got after it this morning for, on behalf of the church. And then I kind of sat down from work, and I, and, I, and I thought, I can't even serve the Lord without even wanting selfish gain out of it. And so the, the, this is the type of people that we're, these are the type of people that we're talking about, uh, people like me, people, wretched sinners like me, that are supposed to be able to frame a worldview based off of our feelings or premonitions or presuppositions about um, what we think, gender, race, you know, po- politics, all these types of things, when in reality, you know, we are clay, God is the potter. And if any theists, I mean, really only an atheist could deny the thing of what I'm about to say, but any theist or any agnostic has to come to the realization that the creator defines morality for his creation. Um, Philosophically, to say that the creation can buck back against the creator on what is best really doesn't make much sense if the creator is good. And of course, we as Christians hold that our creator is good incarnate, is greatness incarnate, is just and mercy, all these things incarnate, that Christ himself is truth. Um, so with that being said, with that set up, um, we'll, we'll start talking about worldview. So you have anything to say kind of regarding worldview? Yeah, I think, um, I think worldview is it, it, that one of the toughest things to see sometimes is to wrap our minds around how we view the world, right? Like, um, do I have a biblical worldview? Uh, it's so much of our worldview is shaped before we even know it, 
Um, I wish I had like a statistic on by what age is your worldview primarily formed. Um, but I think there's definitely a biblical worldview and you, you pretty much hit the nail on the head talking about, you know, we see the world through certain lenses. We see God as, um, you know, how do we, how do we view God? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, when, when it asked the question, who is God, or it actually says, what is God? <laughs> uh, when it says, what is God? The answer is, um, you know, God is a spirit, um, and he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Um, and so we have to kind of start with God. And, and I think that the key word, what you just said, is unchangeable. Right. God is not shifting through right. the winds of culture. He is steadfast, firm. His, his word endures forever, and he endures forever and, and is unchanged. And even before that, thinking about... Before we can say that God's unchangeable, we have to say, why is he unchangeable? And well, the, the, the key to that would be he's not, um, he doesn't correlate to anything else. He's not correlative um, to, to man, to the world, to the weather, to the seasons. He's not dependent upon man. He's not dependent upon, you know, do, if, if 50% of the world believes in Christ today, then he really is the Savior. You know, it's not dependent on the numbers in the church. God existed without the world, without the creation, and we in in the church or in theology, there's a word for this called aseity, um, and that just means pretty much he exists on his own existence, yeah. right? He he doesn't depend on anything else, and because he doesn't depend on anything else, God doesn't change, right? He's he does absolutely does not change, doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, doesn't change from before the foundations of the world till uh, the postmodern era. <laughs> you know, he doesn't change. God is, he's unchangeable. Um, so when we learn about the character of God and that he's holy and that he, you know, he's just, he's good, he's true, then, you know, we start to learn about man. And I think it's really interesting in the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, uh, where does John Calvin start? He doesn't start with man to get to God. He starts with God to get to man. So we actually have to know who God is before we can really know who we are. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's a really good way to look at it. But we have to know how holy God is. He created us in his own image after male and female in his image, after his likeness and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Well, you know, we start to learn about why God created us to glorify and enjoy him. And, and then, you know, we start to learn about the fall of man and our position before God. And, you know, so really to know who we are, we have to know who God is, that we've fallen. And there, there's so much to know. Um, so I think you really hit the, the nail on the head in, in explaining, um, you know, the Christian worldview uh, really is dependent upon total depravity in a sense, yeah. uh, our fallen nature. But we can only see that through um, a transcendental truth, through Scripture, namely. Yeah. Matthew, uh, Matthew 22, 29 says, you are an error because you do not know the Scriptures or mm -hmm. the power of God. And that is, of course, where all error comes from, is stepping outside of God's truth. And, and that's where sin, of course, entered the world through the garden, was Adam and Eve saying, I want to be God. 
and they partook of the, they, you know, they partook, they, they ate the fruit. Mm. That, and this is what postmodernism at its core is. It's saying, I am the master of my own fate. Mm. I am the source of truth for my life, even for other people's life. I have not really seen this um, in the church yet, but I think one thing that's kind of scary is when you see that um, anytime you try to bring in a logical argument founded upon the truth and someone just says, oh, well, that source, right, that truthful argument that you're bringing in uh, is just an oppressive argument, right? So on those grounds, right, I anytime I would say, well, um, you know, if we're talking about um, skin color, right, or if we're talking about the sexual ethic, whatever these things are, whether, you know, if we're talking about the sexual ethic and I'm going to say that I believe um, God created man, male and female, and that a male-female sexual relationship is the only, in the confines of marriage, is the only sexual relationship glorifying to God, then, then they would say that is an oppressive, this is an oppressive document, you know, and, and I'm hiding behind this oppressive document. So they're going to try to tear down this truth and then build up another truth. Um, and I think that, I think that's very dangerous. I think with the racial issue, um, you know, the, the argument in the civil rights era was, we don't need to look at skin color, right? We just need yeah, to it look was ra- at... racial neutrality, right? Right. Yeah. We just need to look at people as people. And, and, and Martin the, Luther King actually said, look at the character of my family and come back and tell me, tell me what a man, what kind of a man I am. Look at my character. Look at the character of my kids. Right. And, uh, um, yeah, Martin Luther King Jr., did you just say Martin Luther? You know, I meant re- to say Martin Luther King. <laughs> you probably did. <laughs> this is a Presbyterian podcast yeah, just after all. On the Reform podcast, we have to clarify. <laughs> um, but no, it, you know, I, I absolutely agree. I think the Christian outlook on that would be to say all men are created in the image of God, right? And they are um, they are created af- in his likeness in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now, that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness is corrupted by the fall of sin, but it's still there to some yeah. degree, right? And and so the, what we would say, but if we just say that all men are intrinsically valuable, invaluable, all life is intrinsically valuable because it's made in the image of God and that we don't want to differentiate a certain skin color as more or less valuable or, get this, more or less evil. Yeah. You know, they would say white people are more evil um, – because I don't know really why they say that, but, you know, but whiteness is a, is a negative thing now. Um, and they would say, I, we're hiding behind this document, behind the scriptures, and, and so it needs to be torn down. And that's, that's a really dangerous place to be. And just to comment on that, uh, you know, I, would, I would say the second that we let arbitrary, any, any arbitrary truth determine what the value of a life is, right, if we take away the transcendental truth, right, if we take away the, the word of God and say 
you get to determine how valuable a life is. That is sin. Remember, we go back to slavery, race-based slavery, and, um, you know, our, the Constitution of the United States of America says um, all men are created e- all men are, are created equal, essentially. Yeah, under God. Yeah. And, um, well, obviously they're slaves. They're, there are human beings who are property, and there are human beings who own property. So they thought that all men were equal, they just didn't think that some of the people were actually people. They didn't consider them to be a true human life. And that is tragic. That is sad. Um, well, we see the same thing today with abortion, right? You give someone a measuring stick for what is human life, and they say, well, this, this is not true human life. Um, so anytime we take away truth, anytime we give the measuring stick of truth to, to man, man will abuse that. So the fact that man has the measuring stick in our society and they're trying to burn down the Bible, tear down the Bible because it's an oppressive measuring stick, that's a very dangerous place to be. And I think um, we do need to be somewhat concerned and, and we should be bold to stand up for the truth of the Bible and, and not not retreating from that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, William. And the thing that another thing that, you know, theologically that that helps is Man is temporal and finite. We will all die. Uh, one of the only things that men have in common, uh, every man in the world has in common, every person in the world has in common, is that we all will die. Uh, we were all born and we will all return to the dust where, where we came. But God is atemporal, uh, meaning he's outside of time, meaning he is infinite. How is finite going to tell infinite? How is temporal going to tell atemporal what is right? What is wrong? How is the temporal culture of postmodernism going to tell the atemporal words of God what is right and what is wrong? Mm-hmm. So really what our, our concern here is is not so much – because we expect the world to say things like this, of course. Uh, we expect the world to attack truth at all turns. But we don't. what we don't want is for Christians to get wrapped up in this. We don't want the church right. to get wrapped up in this. Right. That, that And that is why we are, are talking about this today, uh, because we have seen a very um, disturbing trend in terms of Christians and even seminaries um, allowing this type of theory to be taught. And it really can all go back to um, critical theory, which critical race theory or any type of oppressor versus oppressive studies comes from, um, any type of sociological study comes from, um, postmodern sociological study comes from, is this idea of critical theory, which stems from postmodernism itself, which frames the world against each other. And, and, and William, another thing that's interesting to me is ultimately this is sinful because it's normalizing hatred. Um, it, it's normalizing the attack of one group against the attack of another and, and honestly encouraging that. It's encur- it encourages violence. It encourages hatred. Um, it does nothing to actually bring about peace. Um, and, and, and something that you said earlier, which is, you know, that we've talked about, there's no escape from sin in, the, in, in this postmodernism. There, there is no grace, right? And this is a quote from Robin D'Angelo, who wrote the book White Fragility. Um, she says, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. White identity is inherently racist White people do not exist outside of the system of white supremacy. So if we take that quote at its face value, and this is a bestseller, this book, mm-hmm. uh, one of the best-selling books of 2020. If we take this at its face value, then, then every single white person in the world 
uh, is inherently a part of a system that oppresses minorities in America or even, you know, other races worldwide. You know, uh, uh, I guess a, a other, another side comment is it's interesting that this isn't applied to the Chinese torture of Muslims that's going on right now. I don't know why they stop at Americans. But anyway, it's interesting because mm-hmm. what Scripture says is that every person is redeemable, that the blood of Christ is sufficient for even the worst of sinners. Um, each person, if they're honest with themselves, should be the worst sinner that they know, should be the most evil person that they know. Only you know your deepest, darkest thoughts. I mean, we look at someone like Hitler or Joseph Stalin, of who, of course, held this worldview, or maybe like a Ted Bundy, and we say, oh, man, that person's evil. But how many times have we looked upon our brother with hatred? Hmm. How many times have we looked upon a woman with lust? How many times have we sought to seek and destroy the people around us and our hearts? I am, without a question, the most sinful person I know, and I'm sure you would agree with that. However, at the core of this worldview is individualism, is relativism, is, is saying that I am the master of my own fate. I determine good and bad, and what's true for you isn't true for me. What's good for you isn't good for me. And where does that stop? If, if embraced by the church. Um, mm-hmm. If embraced by the church, then the Bible won't last very long because, man, the Bible is an offensive book, even to people who love it. Every time, you know, the Bible, we don't always read the Bible, but the Bible's reading us. The Bible is critiquing our hearts. The Bible is showing us our sin, our desperate need for the Lord Jesus, and praise him for that. Um, Some of the greatest times in my life where I felt the most near to God is when I came to Scripture not wanting to be near Christ, not wanting Mm -hmm. him, not wanting to spend time in his word, and yet those are the times when he's most ripped ripped open my heart and knocked that door down and said, I love you, and has come near to me when I didn't want to be near him. Um, This is the God that we serve, a God full of grace and compassion, not a God who says, based on your skin color or your sexual identity or your voting, voting, who you vote for, you're an oppressor. Uh, What Scripture says is that everyone is redeemable through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that that is our hope. That is our worldview. Um, Even, you know, someone, something so horrible as, you know, say one of the people that committed 9-11, survived, which would probably be the greatest national tragedy um, in our lifetime, uh, William, since we, you know, we're, you know, right. young, youngish. Um, right. I, I just started getting some gray hairs, which is super unfortunate. But all that to say, you know, even the, the, the people who committed 9-11, we are still called to share the gospel with them. We are still called to preach the truth in love. But in the world of anti-racism and postmodernism, this grace doesn't exist. So I don't know if you you have anything else to say on that, right? You know, to some degree, I don't I don't know who this woman is, um, but to some degree, she's right in that you know all of white people are systematically involved in a, s- a system of oppression. She she's only missing the rest of it in that every other race is also involved in a systematic system, you know, in the system of oppression called sin. We're all sinful, you know. It's not it's. We're, we all are completely sinful. And I think you're right in saying the word of God is critiquing us and calling us out for our sin. I think, um, you know, I think one of, I think one of the beautiful things um, about uh, the story of David and the Psalms, and this may be getting off topic, but, um, you know, 
when David uh, sinned and committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed, he lived a year unrepentant in that sin. And in the 51st Psalm, we have his prayer of uh, repent, uh, repentant prayer um, from David. And when he comes um, into prayer before the Lord, you know, one, one thing that he has to do in the very beginning of this prayer is say how he is condemned, right? He has to come and say, God, you know, my sin is ever before you, um, and he has to be condemned, and and then he has to turn to the Lord and say, uh, "You purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean." Right? But, but but I mean, even before that, Nathan the prophet has to convict him of his sin. He has to tell him a story about a man with a sheep, and he you know a rich man stole the man's one sheep, and you know he said, "What should we do to this man?" He says, "I, I want this man killed." Mm. And then Nathan the prophet looks at him and says, "Thou art the man. You know, you're the man, David. This was you." Um, I think you know we don't humans naturally don't want to embrace guilt for our sin. We want to point fingers. We want to blame a lot of other things. And I think uh, one interesting point to me is categorization. Um, of this postmodern thought is trying to put everything into little categories. Uh, it, that part's interesting to me. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't understand why we have to categorize everything. I think it's, it's much easier to just say sin is sin. It's bad, you know, um, and, and leave it at that. But I think you're really right in, in looking at, um, just how hesitant we are to, to evaluate ourselves to look at our own sin. Yeah. One of my favorite, one of my favorite things about scripture is at the end of scripture, Jesus wins every single time. Mm -hmm. Um, Christ always comes back no matter uh, where you read in scripture and where you end up in in the book of revelation, Christ comes back and consummates all things to himself. And and, and he is King in in this world of postmodernism. It's, it's really not so much a worldview as maybe it is an anti worldview, yeah, maybe I think it may be better to categorize it at that. It's a worldview that seeks to deconstruct everything positive about, um, specifically probably Western civilization, and so it seeks to destroy. It's kind of like the orcs in Lord of the Rings. I mean, they exist for one purpose, and that is to destroy and bring about death. I don't. <laughs> I have a confession. I'm one of those people who's never seen Lord of the Rings. Well, that's a travesty, and we'll yeah. have another podcast where we get onto you for that. Uh, better than Chronicles I get of made Narnia. fun of a lot for that. It's definitely better than Chronicles of Narnia for for those listening. Uh, we'll have a poll, maybe a link for a poll at the bottom of the uh, podcast. Of Huge Lord of the Rings fan, never seen Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is is legendary, yeah. uh, but the orcs, of course, exist to <laughs> to destroy everyone who Sauron wants destroyed, and they basically have no purpose of existence outside of that. Hmm. And I'd say that this type of thought is is very similar. Um, and, and at the end of the day, not only is it an anti worldview. It's also a religion. It's a religion that's that's all. It's a law based religion, as in Christianity is a grace based religion, wherein we can do nothing to earn our salvation, but it's given to us from God. This is a works based religion, where it is only law, and it is the law of anti racism to atone for the original sin of racism um, or white guilt. I guess we could say 
Um, and I didn't, I didn't make that up. Vody Bauckham made that up in his new book, Fault Lines, which just mm. recently came out, which I would encourage everyone to read and be equipped. Um, but, but it is a religion, I think, at the end of the day. It's everyone, whether they know it or not, is a religious. Um, as John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. We're always make of idols. And so I think that's where this whole culture of Christians desiring to virtue signal about these things has become so problematic is because they are sucked into the, the type of religious activity that postmodernism demands. And that's dangerous because Christians, as we know, cannot serve two masters. And we think of when Christ says those things, we, we, we think of that as maybe money. And of course, that's probably closer to the context of what Christ was talking about with money. And, and But you can't serve two religions. You can't serve mm-hmm. postmodernism in Christ. Those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, they're logically inconsistent with one another. Right. Just to, to pause for a second, I think it, one thing that can be very helpful is I think when we, we're so used to thinking about this issue in the terms of when we see symptoms of it flare up in our lives. So the things that we've been talking about, right, um, critical race theory, um, sexual ethic issues, you know, whatever it may be, these are all symptoms of an underlying disease. And the underlying disease is the denying of any objective truth, a truth that transcends everything, right? Um, And so... If there's one institution on the earth that should not have this problem, it should be the very institution to which God has entrusted truth, which is the church, right? So when we're talking about this, when we're really getting into, as you were just getting into more of the church and how this relates to the church, the first thing that we should be thinking is this really shouldn't be a problem for the church because the church has the truth. The church is, you know, the pillar and buttress, as, as the book of Ephesians says, of the truth. And so, you know, when we think about critical race theory, sexual ethic, and all these issues, well, these issues come up because someone has denied God's word, God's truth on this issue, and now they're looking to their own human reason to come up with, with the issues. Um, and so I guess it shouldn't surprise us that the culture doesn't have truth on this, but we should be surprised when we come to the church. So could, can we talk about for a second how the church gets influenced in this way? Is, yeah. is it getting us too off topic? Yeah, no, let's do it. And, and before we even do that, I want to read a quote that should set up our conversation pretty well. Uh, it's not a quote, it's the Bible. I don't know why I say quote. <laughs> but this is Christ and his high priestly prayer in John 17, starting at verse 17, actually. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also be, may be sanctified in truth. So let me read that verse 17 specifically again. Sanctify them in your truth. Of course, this is Jesus talking to the Father. Your word is truth. So like you said, Christians have no business being in this thought process because Christ Himself is truth, and God's word is truth. Mm-hmm. We can't be tossed around to and fro with every wind and wave of doctrine, as Ephesians says. We have to stand firm and build our house on the rock. Right. Postmodernism is sand, and it will be blown away every time. And so, really, at the end of the day, well, any, anything, not just postmodernism, anything that's anything, not Christ, anything that's not Christ, right? Anything that's not Christ, and that includes any works-based religion that claims to be Christianity as well. Throw that in there. Anything that's built on our own performance. 
or anything that we could do, whether that's virtue signaling or um, obeying a certain number of sacraments, is building our house on sand because we ultimately came from right. dust and we are dust and we will return yeah, to us. Even like uh, that might be a good time to say like it's not just a matter of conservatism versus liberalism um, because you know Islam is probably more conservative, Roman Catholicism has more conservative points, um, but that's not Christ. That's not the Rock, right? Yeah, we so, definitely don't want to make this a GOP thing. It's certainly yeah. not. We do- totally disagree with the way that you know the political right approaches these things as well. Yeah, Islam has a. A truth. They they believe the Quran. They believe it's holy, um, but it's sinking sand, and and they're being drawn away from the truth by it. So yeah, I like how you brought up the rock and the sand because that just points us back to there is one truth uh, that, that speaks authoritatively over over all truth. So or all falsehoods, <laughs> all lies. <laughs> That's yeah. probably the way I say that. Yeah. So you know specifically, let's kind of you know start wrapping this conversation up and. Let's finish off with kind of the church and how we right. got here and how we get out, and then let's kind of maybe finish this up talking about biblical justice and biblical injustice and how to coincide those two things as the Bible describes mm-hmm. them. Because ultimately, it, left to ourselves, we will never figure out how to deal with the very real problem of racism or to deal with the very real problem of sin in the world. We can't know how to deal with those things unless Scripture guides us because how are sinners ever going to make up a right way to solve injustice. It will just be sin on top of sin. Right. So in terms of the church, um, I mean, I definitely have my own thoughts on why I think this is, but I think scripture ultimately, and even going back to the Calvin quote about our hearts being idle, idle factories, I think that is really where it comes down to. Um, the fact that many Christians are, are drawn to this system that claims to be on the side of the oppressed, of course. But in the past, this same system, you know, has said that it it is the system that is on the side of the working class, and then it ends up, you know, murdering the entire working class by starvation or just direct firing squads, whatever it may be. Right. Um, and so I think that it, if this continues to be the prevailing theory of thought in America, that we'll see that this is actually the worst thing for race relations in America. This critical race theory or any critical theory is the worst thing that could happen to this country in terms of race relations without question because there is no unity. And so the church has to be fearful of this. Why? Because it is anti-gospel. And we are drawn to things as our hearts, our idol factories, our hearts are drawn to things that are not Christ. Things that bolster us, things that allow me to stand on a pedestal instead of the gospel of Christ. One thing that many um, people in the anti-racist group, Jamar Tisby, Ibram Kendi, they hate the phrase that the gospel, preach the gospel and that will cure the problem of racism in America. They hate that. Mm. Why? Because that means Jesus does everything. That means the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of unbelievers and the hearts of of America or in the hearts of the world. The ultimately God will get the glory. We hate that. We want to be involved. We want to be the ones solving this issue. We want to be the ones posting on Instagram the things that we agree with and you know how we do XX and X. But ultimately, what is that? Those that post on Instagram will ultimately die. You will die. But what's right. left? Who have you told a temporal truth to? Who have you told the infinite truth of God's word to? 
Christ doesn't tell us to virtue signal before he ascends into heaven. Mm-hmm. What does he say? Preach the gospel to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Anti-racism advocates for none of this, does none of this, but yet it draws so many Christians, I think, because, excuse me, because it attracts them saying that we are for unity, we are for grace, we are on the side of the oppressed, when in reality, they're not. And the, and the problem with that is that the church is taking, and I, no, when I say the church, you know, I've been very impressed by the church's reaction to this in many cases. So I'm not, I'm not just trying to gripe, but, um, I think the problem when we hear stuff like that is that the church is taking its cues from the culture, right? The church is taking its cues from the culture on how to address, uh, a sin problem. And, you know, one of the main stories of the Bible is, is why we should never do that. You know, so, I think that's a very simple. The church takes takes its cues from the from the Word of God. That's that's what instructs us, um, and, and it's very simple. But we just feel so guilty sometimes when we hear the culture coming up with a a good hearted or kind or loving response to a problem, um, and, and you know they put they would paint us to be the oppressor, right? The church or the Bible, the biblical response to be the oppressor. You don't want to be on that side. You want to be on the kind, loving side. But um, if if it's in contention with God's word, then it is in no means kind or loving. It is sinful, yep. right? And so we, we cannot take our cues from culture. We have to be bold and stand stand upon the truth of God's word. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that kind of addresses the church problem and maybe why so many Christians and Christian leaders and even seminaries are attracted to this. But, you know, at the end of the day, it denies sola scriptura, which is a foundation of evangelicalism. It denies the sufficiency of the Bible when Christians embrace, you know, critical race theory to address these issues. It denies the Spirit's power, really, to come to the hearts of non-believers or believers that are struggling with this issue, as many do, um, and, and, and unify. So... I think another you know thing that we need to kind of finish up talking about is how does the Bible define justice and injustice, mm-hmm. and how does it seek to reconcile those things? So, from a very high level view, justice you know, or, or really injustice you know, from a from a cosmic standpoint, is treason against God. Mm-hmm. Um, any any sin against God, whether that me you know, th- whether that being something so trivial as maybe me stumping my toe against the wall and saying a bad word. And even so severe as me killing somebody, that both of those sins are are deserving of eternal punishment, as it is cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. So, and we, if we think about it, injustice at a high level is treason against God. Justice is eternal punishment for that treason against God, as scripture uh, as scripture outlines it and then very clearly states it. Now, in terms of man to man injustice versus versus justice. Um, I think the, 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 there, there's two things that we that we need to talk about in terms of you know how we sin against one another. Uh, the Bible defines impartiality um, a couple times in the New Testament as being really important. So in James two, at a high level, James makes the argument that no one is to show partiality in decision-making. When we share the gospel, when we serve one another in a legal legal system, we are to show no partiality towards one person or another based off of money, status, 
finance, race, sex right. in these conversations. And so if that's happening, then we would absolutely stand with the victim, you know, as Christians and say, if they are being judged impartially, then that is an absolute biblical reason to stand at their side. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, with the George Floyd situation, you know, I don't know too much about the trial that just took place, but I, you know, I know that any cop standing on someone's neck for that period of time is injustice. I don't know if it was impartial because of a certain issue, but we know that that was injustice as, you know, the cop was, you know, Derek Chauvin was using his power against George Floyd and that, and that's bad. <laughs> no, no Christian's going to look at that and say, that's a good thing, right? right? We can all affirm in unity that that was bad and that was a cop showing impartiality, you know, based off of X reason. Um, and then there's proportionality. Basically, Exodus 21 outlines this as premeditated murder versus accidental murder. If I'm driving down the street and accidentally hit someone with my car, um, then my punishment biblically is worse in terms of the law, the Mosaic law, than if I premeditated. If I premeditated and then murder somebody, if I, if I meant and planned something and then did it. But what, what the culture does is kind of, especially with this proportionality, it kind of chunks it out the window because is that, that quote that we read from Robin D'Angelo, even if you're accidentally white, as all of us are, we didn't choose our race, right. um, you are still in just as deep sin as, as a Richard Spencer would be, as someone who's trying to bring kind of an ethno-Caucasian state into America, which we would condemn to the highest levels. Um, you are just as guilty as Richard Spencer is, according to the eyes of the anti-racist postmodern crowd. And that is just one reason, you know, one example of how Scripture vehemently stands in opposition to these things. And we've really kind of changed the definition of what sin is in the eyes of morality. Um, sin is involuntary participation in the eyes of the culture and, and Scripture. It is, you know, premeditated sin and also sin in our hearts and our minds that is treason against God. So I don't know if you right. have anything to add to that. Yeah, I think— I think you, you said some good things. I think when we think about sin, um, you know, go, going back to the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, sin is any transgression of, or is, is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Well, if you listen to that statement, the one thing you have to hear is an ab, you know, an objective set of standards of what the law, you know, of, of what we transgress or don't conform to the law of God that has authority over our lives. So any, anytime we transgress that, um, that is sin, how is sin punished? Like you said, eternal, eternal, eternal damnation. Um, so really for everyone who's crying out for justice, well, the most just thing that could happen would be your eternal punishment. Um, we don't really want justice. That's not what we, any of us really want. Um, now, for human flourishing in the culture, we do want justice. We want, we, we really want justice. But justice uh, doesn't mean just every time that someone speaks and says you're not being just, you know, we have to say by what standard are you, are you saying I'm not just? Um, and my standard, you know, and I hate it that even I just said my standard, but the standard of justice, let's just say that the standard is the Holy Scriptures, um, the Word of God in the Old and New Testament. That is the standard of justice. And so we want wicked men who murder people um, to either, you know, be 
to, to be punished duly. Um, we're not going to get into that can of worms. But you know, if someone commits a crime, we want that crime to be punished. If someone does not commit a crime, we want them to be left alone, right, in society. In the church, you know, we don't really need to be focused too much on solving justice issues besides praying for those who are in authority over us that they might be just. And the biggest way, I think, and I may be jumping the gun and getting into this conversation, but the biggest way I think that the church can influence society is by living like this word, the word in front of us actually matters. By living, um, you know, by living out Christian lives, you know, praising God, worshiping God, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, loving one another, um, and heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ day to day. Uh, when when the word of God goes forth, people you know will live in submission to this word. Um, that's that's how justice uh, will, will break in to a society uh, and hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and ultimately, we want people to come into the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, we want people to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We want the gospel of Jesus Christ to triumph through all the world, right? Um, but I think with that comes a more just society because people submit themselves to God's word, mm. right? Yeah, and they also serve the poor and feed the widow. And we do we go out in the community and we do these things because God's word, God's word has spurned us to do so, has so affected our hearts. Right. Where we must serve. We must we must feed the poor. We must do these things that God has called us to do. God is not opposed to social justice. God is opposed right. to social justice as the world has defined social justice. And, and it comes not, in that case, through a legal spirit. You know, um, Sinclair Ferguson said, we're all born a legalist. Uh, I love that uh, quote. It doesn't come through a legal spirit. It comes through a heart reborn by the Spirit of God, a heart united to Jesus Christ that loves people, you know, that actually loves our neighbor as ourselves and loves the saints as Jesus Christ loved us sacrificially. Um, you know, these, this kind of sick mentality of the postmodernism doesn't love anyone sacrificially, right? It's a sinful mentality. So we we want to see the gospel break into um, into the world, and and but we need to see the church standing upon the truth of God boldly uh, to see that happen. And yeah. so, you know, I think as far as the church and how we view justice, we have to reclaim what we already have or what we should have, which is the truth of God's word. Yeah, um, that's great, man. Thank you, thank you for saying all that. Uh, and then finally, let's look at James five, um, okay? If we could, James five. I won't read. I won't read all uh, all twelve verses that we're talking about, but I'll kind of summarize. James one through six. James five verses one through six is kind of a warning to the rich. Um, you verse one says, "Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you." Verse two, "Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten." So this is these are very strong words by James, basically warning the rich of their injustice, of their, you know, I guess we could even say oppression of the poor, their greed, uh, and it will all fade away. And so James, in the next section in James 5 and verse 7, says that your response to this kind of greed should be patience. And then in verse 8, James says, strengthen your hearts. And in verse 13, he says to pray. 
So the, the biblical response to injustice is not to, you know, take it on the back and forget about it and keep moving forward. The biblical response to justice is knowing that Christ has already won, knowing that in our patience and strengthening of heart and prayer, that nothing we do will ever be in vain, that the sovereign Lord, the sovereign creator, the covenant king of the world foreordained everything to come to pass. That includes, as I said last week, postmodern thought. God is not surprised or shocked by postmodernism or critical race theory that seeks to divide the kingdom. He ordained it to purify the church in a way, in a way that we don't understand, but in a way that God's truth equips us um, to attack, I guess, for lack of a better term. God's word equips us in, in ways to see. It gives us glasses to see truth from falsehood that we would never have before the Spirit opens the eyes of the unbeliever and lets them see truth from falsehood. And so this is the hope of James 5, that in the midst of oppression, in the midst of even, a, even a, a, you know, we'll even give the devil his due here, even in the middle of a class warfare or racial warfare um, that, you know, supposedly is all around us, even if that was the case, taking their presupposition to its fullest extent, even if that was the case, the call of the church is to be patient, to strengthen our hearts, and to pray. Not only pray for deliverance, but to pray for the salvation of the people doing the oppressing, to pray for the salvation. I mean, how hard is it for the Republican to pray for Joe Biden? How hard is it for the Democrat to pray for Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. These are things that are impossible without the Spirit working in our hearts. This is, you know, this is this is alien righteousness as the actual, you know, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, as we had the confusion earlier. <laughs> right. Martin Luther defined this as alien righteousness, something that's foreign to us. It's foreign to our substance. It's foreign to our essence to pray for enemies, to mm-hmm. love those who hate us. And, you know, I think we, we should wrap this up, you know, with the gospel, with, with knowing that there are people out there dividing us, people hoping in, in a state salvation, not hoping in a kingdom salvation is Christ as king, but hoping in the state and hoping in government to make all things right. And we would point them away from that and point them to the hope that we have in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the passage that you were just going through, that's exactly what it's talking about. Um, you know, James speaking in the Jewish dispersion, talking about don't put your faith in riches. Don't put your faith in um, the state and the nation in um, earthly justice. Put your faith in Jesus Christ who fully paid the price for your sin, who drank the cup of the wine of God's wrath down to the dregs for you. Uh, will you come to him? And will you place your faith in him? Um, you know, will you take of Christ? And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can overcome um, the world, right? Yeah. And it has. <laughs> yeah. So we rejoice in the victory and we would ask you, uh, anyone who's listening with us to to join us in celebrating the victory of Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, amen. The sufficiency of Scripture is is our... Uh, gun in the holster for 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 anything that that that, that the culture claims um it, it is our silver bullet against culture it is everything that we could hope for everything that we need for life and godliness as the confession says as well um, in christ we hope in christ we know who has won the victory and he will bring us on the other side and he will refine and purify his church through all this so we we look forward and we hope um in the coming of the lord jesus to make all things right knowing that our sovereign Lord at the end of the day will win. 
So for William Skinner, this is Josh Anders signing out of episode two of Crossroads. We hope to see you next week. Thank you.